Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called The Greatest Race You've Never Heard Of, we tell the story of the Bahamas Speed Week race that happened from 1954 through 1966. An incredible gathering of the world's greatest sports cars and sports car racers in the tropical Bahamas during the off-season made for great parties and even greater racing. This is the story of Bahamas Speed Week. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. Many people, myself included, tend to over-romanticize the 1950s and 60s era of auto racing. We look back and see the beautiful cars and the big-name globetrotting drivers, the rich car owners, and lots of other stuff which allow us to paint a pretty rosy picture for ourselves. The truth is that these were two decades of grit, of tragedy, and of high danger for everyone involved from the racers, the mechanics, and even the spectators. But this historic illusion we've created has to be rooted in something somewhere, right? It couldn't have all been grease, fire, and danger, could it? The answer is that the idyllic scenes we've seemingly created for ourselves did exist specifically in one amazing place and at one amazing event that had a lifespan of more than a decade. An event where legends like A.J. Foyt, Roger Penske, Mark Donahue, Bruce McLaren, Jim Hall, Mario Andretti, Dan Gurney, and an incredible list of immortals gathered each year in a tropical location to race the world's coolest cars, party every night, and hobnob with the beautiful people of the era. This event that you may have never heard of was called Bahamas Speed Week, and this is its story. I've long been a bit obsessed with the story of Bahamas Speed Week because it does combine every glorious facet of racing from an era we all look back on with such reverence. When we look back at the history of the event, it is not marred by death and destruction. It's not marred by scandal and mismanagement. Its overriding history is one of a jovial but highly competitive, high-dollar-staked race with the best cars, the coolest people, and perhaps the best single party scene of any motorsports event in history, and it all started with a brilliant idea from a tyrant. Sherman Red Christ is one of American motorsports' greatest forgotten characters. He loved three things. He loved money, power, and fast machines, and likely not in that exact order, but they were certainly the top three on his list. He was a man who lived a life of boom and very little bust. 
He was a World War II pilot who flew in nearly every theater of the war, survived parachuting out of a wounded plane, broke three vertebrae, and that was all after he had made his first fortune. Christ was a big man, going over six feet tall depending on his stage of life, tipping the scales at over 250 pounds. But where did he come from? This story from the May 1st, 1953 Denton Record Chronicle tells a pretty good story. Title, Hal Boyle says, quote, Big Red Likes Speed, by Hal Boyle, Associated Press. Quote, Most men spend their lives trying to learn to do one thing well. Sherman Christ, who broke his pocketbook in the Bronx on his own account and later busted his back in Burma for Uncle Sam, doesn't fit in any single pigeonhole. It is hard to figure something this gutsy 6-foot, 250-pounder hasn't tried and done well at. Quote, I guess racing's been my real business, he said. The things I love are speed, money, and machinery. I like playing with an engine more than anything else in the world, but you can't make real money getting your fingers dirty, so I turn to promoting. Big Red is one of the first two men to pioneer midget car racing in America, and at 47 is one of the key figures in the nation's $80 million a year auto racing industry. Quote, of course it's fast and dangerous, he said, grinning, but I've promoted more than 500 races since the war, and there hasn't been a driver killed in one yet. Big Red has always enjoyed living the life at full throttle. He trained as a Navy flyer at Pensacola, studied banking, engineering, and economics. He went into Wall Street and made a fast buck and got out before the 1929 boom fell apart. Then he became a speedboat, hydroplane, and airplane racer and set a few records. Quote, in 1933, I started promoting midget car racing in the Bronx, he recalled ruefully, and in two years, I dropped $168,000. But Big Red always seemed to know where the greenbacks grow. By 1942, when he volunteered for war service, he was bossing 14 racetracks. Quote, they shut down the tracks in seven days, he said. The Navy turned me down as a flyer, so I walked across the street and signed up with the Army Air Corps. Christ flew in every war theater from class to Burma, helped map Brazilian jungles and air-scouted beaches for the African and Sicilian invasions. While flying the hump in 1945, he ran out of gas, parachuted, and broke three vertebrae. Today, Big Red owns a yacht basin near Miami, a spark plug business, a 65-foot yacht, auto racing tracks in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Washington, and other odd assortments. He's logged more than 15,000 miles in the air, but no longer will take a plane up and prefers to drive his $10,000 Jaguar sports car. This story gives us a good understanding of how Red Christ got his way off the ground, and now we need to understand just how much money this guy was making at the height of the midget racing boom before World War II. He was promoting more than a dozen venues at the same time and running them on a schedule that was just unbelievable. On any given night of the week, multiple facilities were running, and on the weekends, he had the vast majority going simultaneously. After the war, he got right back in where he left off. While he didn't have as many tracks he was promoting, he did other things. He opened a massive marine company called Miami Marine Basin Inc., created a yacht club, and of course named himself Commodore, and had various other business interests. He had a fast plane called the Crying Towel, and he had a 65-foot diesel yacht called the Golden Fleece, and it was that yacht and the trappings that came with it that would take Christ to a new direction in motor racing. After the northern racing season would close each year, Christ would beat feet to Miami to live the good life. The marine business was cranking, the yacht club might as well have been dumping truckloads of money into his bank account every month, he raced powerboats, tooled around in his D-type Jag, and was perhaps the most verbose and loud member of the wealthy set in a rapidly expanding city. But everyone needs a place to escape to every now and then. That place was the Bahamas for Sherman Christ and his wife Evelyn. Every fall, they'd sail the relatively short 90 miles to Nassau and luxuriate with Sir Sidney Oakes and his wife Lady Greta Oakes. Oakes held the title of Baronet. He was the son of Harry Oakes, an American-born man who had been a gold prospector and finally staked a claim on a piece of land in western Canada. 
That piece of land would ultimately hold the second most productive gold mine in the history of the Americas. His philanthropy through Canada, the United States, and ultimately the Bahamas were removed is what earned him the title of baronet, which was then transferred to his son, Sidney. In 1943, Harry Oakes was murdered. A crazy story in and unto itself, but one that we're kind of going to skip here. Needless to say, Sidney got the title and was now in possession of wealth so immense it was certainly among the largest on the planet. While one can consider Oakes and Christ an odd couple to be friends, the mutual attraction makes sense to me. Christ, attracted to what was effectively the royal living of the Oakes family in the Bahamas, and the Oakes were drawn to the larger-than-life stories and persona of Christ as opposed to the more reserved and gentrified existence they normally lived. Opposites really do attract. They did share one very important mutual love, though. Auto racing. As the midget circuit became more and more crowded, Christ was smart and diversified his efforts. He promoted stock car races, jalopy races, auto shows, boat races, really anything that struck his fancy. Through his time in Miami, he began to appreciate sports car racing and the enthusiasts who were involved. They were all moneyed, and many were simply into the thrill of owning the cars and hiring a professional driver to compete in it. Then a single event happened that really got his wheels turning. In June of 1953, at the legendarily deadly Langhorne Speedway in Pennsylvania, a first-of-its-kind race was held. Stock cars and sports cars raced together and against each other for the first time. This was on a one-mile circular dirt track. And while the first and second place finishers were both stock cars driven by Dick Rathman and Lee Petty, the mix drew a huge crowd of mostly curious racing fans. It was also the only time in history that a Volkswagen Beetle was an entrance in a NASCAR Championship Series race. So what did Christ do? In July of 1953, he decided to stage his own version. Journal and Courier Newspaper, July 2, 1953. Headline, Schedule Race, Lana, Maryland. Foreign-made cars will compete against American-made autos in the 100-mile stock car race here, July 17th, West Lanham Speedway officials announced yesterday. Sherman Christ, Lanham's racing director, said he received the approval of the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing to put on the second international race to be run on a conventional oval raceway. The first was held at Langhorne, Pennsylvania, last July 21st. The event may not have been a blockbuster, as there was no news coming to who won the race and certainly no reaction, but this race, in my mind, cemented something that Red Christ had wanted to do for a long, long time, which was to bring auto racing to his favorite place in the world, the Bahamas. The first true indication that Christ had moved on his dream to race in the Bahamas, likely with the help of Sir Sidney Oaks, came in March of 1954. The Miami News, March 23, 1954, headline, NASA plans to hold race. An international sports car road race with star drivers from over the world competing for honors may be held in NASA next winter. The announcement was made here by Sir Sidney Oaks, president of the newly formed Bahamas Automobile Club and chairman of the race committee. Quote, application has already been made by the Bahamas Automobile Club to the Federation Internationale Automobile in Paris, asking that the NASA race be given affiliation status, move that would give us the race and its competing drivers international recognition for points towards world championships, he said. According to present plans, the race committee will meet to decide definitive dates for the seven-day event, race rules, and other course events will be run. Soon after this, invitations will be extended to the group of top drivers. Two veterans in sports car racing, Sherman Red Kreis of Miami and William Tuthill, director of the Museum of Speed in Daytona Beach, have volunteered to assist the Nassau Club with technical direction in the actual operation of the event. End quote. Once the event was announced, promotions were made in various car magazines, racing publications, and by Christ ringing the bell himself at sports car events all over the country. The result was a true media blitz that began in November of 1954 and blasted right into December. November 4th, the Miami Herald, 1954. 
Plans for the first annual Nassau Trophy Road Race roared into high gear Wednesday with the announcement that the Royal Automobile Club had approved the Bahamas Speed Week meeting. Sir Sidney Oaks, president of the sponsoring Bahamas Automobile Club, received official sanction by the British group in a cable received here Wednesday morning. With all doubt of official approval removed, the local sports car group pushed into the final planning stage for the week-long event slated for December 6th through the 12th at Windsor Airfield. Meanwhile, Porfirio Rubiosa, international playboy, joined the crack field for the trophy race, the standout event. In the week-long program of trials and racing, he will drive his Ferrari, which he also entered in the Mexican road race. Other standout racers and drivers entered include Luigi Cinetti, Donald Healy, John Bentley, Herman Ling, Phil Bell, and Irwin Goldsmith. Another story published now on November 20th in the Miami Herald. Title 36 Auto set for Nassau race. Hushke von Hornstein, general manager of the Porsche race team, will enter three cars in the Nassau Trophy race during the speed week here. His entry brings 36 cars officially accepting for the race test, the outstanding event in the first annual Bahamas Speed Week to be held on Windsor Airfield course. Two of von Horstein's cars are competing in the Pan American Road Race. And then this story, December 1st in the Miami Herald of 1954, titled Two More Enter Bahamas Race. Two outstanding sports car drivers today announced plans to compete in the Bahamas Speed Week and Nassau Trophy Race here next week. Latest to enter in the field were Mastin Gregory of Kansas City, a veteran of European racing events, and George Schraft, the New York restaurateur and former sports car dealer in Palm Beach. Officials of the Bahama Automobile Club wound up preparing the three-and-a-half-mile course on Windsor Airfield and finished construction of the grandstand along one of the straightaways. As if that wasn't enough, this story, the Fort Lauderdale News of December 5, 1954, headlined, Two Lady Pilots Enter Bahamas Sports Car Races. Two women pilots joined the field for the Bahamas Speed Week here today as race officials began evaluating entries for the sports car competition. The feminine pair added to the group were Miss Isabel Haskell of Palm Beach, who will drive a Ciata, and Lady Greta Oakes, the wife of Sir Sidney Oakes, who will pilot an Austin Healey. Other late entrants into the field rapidly approaching its maximum of 50 were Robert McKinney of Washington, D.C. with a plus four Morgan, Pete Wilmot of Toronto, a speedster with a supercharged MG Special, and James Quackenbush, Daytona Beach, former Indianapolis competitor with a Jaguar Modified. Meanwhile, the first two cars arrived in Nassau for the week of speed, as disc jockey Martin blocks Austin Healey to be driven off by Fred Allen, and a new MG1500, entered and driven by Dave Ash, were unloaded after shipment from New York. The bulk of the sports car speedsters were converging on Miami, where they'll be put aboard the SS Queen of Nassau before 10 Monday morning for shipment to the island, where speed trials and test runs will be staged Wednesday and Thursday. End quote. Now, it should be mentioned that there were some local cars that would compete in this event, but most of the machines were put on the cargo ship and floated the 90 miles from Miami and then offloaded onto the decks in the Bahamas with a lot of fanfare. This was something the local population had never witnessed before. Well, it was certainly a bit of a fiasco, getting everybody situated and unloaded. The work was completed within the arrival day of the SS Queen of Nassau freighter. The race course that this event was run on over the first few years was ridiculous in many ways. The Windsor Field Road Course was three and a half miles of former World War II airfield that had been paved with crushed coral, rocks, and asphalt. It destroyed tires, and it was run around the main runway on surfaces that had barely been cleared, maintained, or even used since the base was turned into a civilian airport several years after World War II. Drivers described the course as a nightmare, and its reputation for being rough and tumble was exposed before actual racing even began. In fact, it would be the unlucky Erwin Goldschmidt, the man from New York, would be the first guy to ever crash a car at the Bahamas Speed Week event. And here's the story. The Palm Beach Post, December 9, 1954. Headline, Goldschmidt Escapes Injury During Test. 
Erwin Goldschmidt, New York race car driver, escaped injury today when a steering arm on his Ferrari 4.9 broke during a test run prior to Bahamas Speed Week. Goldschmidt managed to keep the rocketing Ferrari under control after the steering arm on the right front wheel cracked as he roared out of a turn and onto a straightaway at an estimated 140 miles an hour. He was able to bring the car to a stop without braking by shifting down through the gears. A replacement part is already en route from New York, and Goldschmidt will be back in action for the events on the weekend program of the Bahamas Speed Week. Trial runs in the three-and-a-half-mile jungle-bound Windsor Airfield course were closed at noon today as race officials scattered crews along the runway to bring the track into top condition. Contenders for honors in the Bahamas Automobile 105-mile race Saturday and featured 210-mile up to Nassau Trophy race Sunday will be back on track tomorrow to continue their tune-ups. Despite the course concerns, the event came off well, and it was won by an American racing legend and really the one guy who was in competition that could help put this event on the map globally, Mastin Gregory. Gregory, the famed Kansas City Flash, was as fearless and skilled a racer as America would produce in the 1950s. He was also the son of wealth and traveled the world racing cars for some of the highest profile people and teams in motorsports. Most of the field was made up of talented amateurs, but Gregory was an actual racing star at this time, so his victory in a Ferrari helped to set the wheels in motion for what would be the explosive growth of Bahamas Speed Week. As the cars were packaged back up and shipped off the island following the decadent race-end party at the mansion of Sir and Lady Oaks, everyone, especially Christ, wondered how to make 1955 bigger and better. As it would turn out, they didn't need a whole lot of help. Word of the event began to spread within the sports car racing community, so when the following year's media blitz began in November, the pump was already primed. From the humble 36 invites and 15 to 20 local cars in 1954, there were now 100 invites going out, and they were going out to the right people. Travel agencies started to get involved and book trips down to watch the race and put packages together for potential spectators. Specialty events were being added over the course of the week. Women drivers were being promoted again as part of the event as well. The race, on the same rough course as the year before, was even better, this time being won by Phil Hill, a legendary American racer who would go on in just a couple years' time to become the first and only American-born Formula One champion, a mark he holds to this day. As it happened the year before, the parties ended, the ships left, and a quiet island life resumed. The planning for 1956 had already begun, though. As the media machine churned up for 56, the field got even larger and more prestigious. Entry requests from around the world from the top teams, both private and factory, came in droves. Bahamas Speed Week reputation had done exactly what Christ figured it would. The late extension of the racing season for one last week a year, doused with parties, doused with beauty, and a lush, beautiful tropical setting had played out exactly as he figured it would. The racing that year brought thousands to the island for the week, and among them, Sir Sterling Moss, one of history's greatest racing pilots and the eventual winner of Bahamas Speed Week in the trophy race in 1956. To say that this guy embodied all that was truly glorious about this era of racing would be underselling it. Heck, just look at him. The 1957 race saw Sterling Moss back again in top form, but he had his competition, and that competition came from a Texan who had gained respect for his own skills around the world. His name? Carol Shelby. It was also a new course. Windsor Field was abandoned due to the increased need for air traffic and its general shabbiness. In its place, the Oaks Field course was used. Still a collection of runways and taxiways, this was five miles of long straights and flat, mostly high-speed corners run in a counterclockwise direction. To say that Moss's success in the Bahamas traveled the world is completely accurate. December 11, 1957, Guam Daily News. Headline, Moss wins Nassau race. The Bahamas, December 10th. 
Sterling Moss, a balding young wizard of the sports car racing set, has proved again he can turn apparent disaster into smashing success. The little British champion won his second straight Nassau Trophy race Sunday, driving a borrowed 3.5-liter Ferrari on an average speed of 101.6 miles an hour for the 50-lap, 250-mile-an-hour finish. The world's second-ranked sports car pilot switched to the unfamiliar Ferrari after his Aston Martin was wrecked Saturday by Ruth Levy of Los Angeles during a women's race. The switch didn't seem to bother him, although he did say the Ferrari didn't handle as easily as machines he usually drives. Moss zipped across the finish line 1 minute, 5.4 seconds, or about 1 and 2 thirds miles ahead of the runner-up Carroll Shelby of the U.S., who was in a 4.5-liter Maserati. This was the second straight year a pre-race wreck threatened Moss's chances. Last year, the 3-liter Maserati Moss drove to victory was wrecked two days before the race by its owner Bill Lloyd of the U.S. Repairs are completed just in time for Moss to get in the starting lineup. Moss, a wizard on the curves and bends of the 5-mile Oaks Airfield course, wrestled a lead from Shelby for good after 34 laps and began to pad his front-running margin steadily. The Britisher was gaining about four seconds per lap on Shelby, who reportedly had some clutch and steering trouble, which cut into his speed. After these back-to-back -back wins by Moss, now's a good time to mention a couple of things. Each of these events effectively spanned 10 days between the time the drivers and luminaries arrived until the time they left. There were typically three races a week held on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Those were the Tourist Trophy, the Governor's Trophy, and the big prize was the Nassau Trophy race on Sunday. The Tourist Trophy was the kickoff race after days of parties and practice, and it was for the typically slower, small-board GT cars. The Governor's Trophy was for the big bore stuff and served as much as a preview for the Nassau Trophy race, but it was more intense than the Taurus Trophy. Most of the smart and competitive racers didn't drive their stuff 10 tenths in the Governor's Trophy race in order to save their equipment for Sunday. Finally, the Nassau Trophy was the big one. It was open to all cars, all classes, had a Le Mans start, and required one pit stop per race where the driver had to physically get out of the car, put both feet on the ground, and get back in the car, and then go like the Dickens. Additionally, it needs to be mentioned that the reasoning behind the event was not the single weekly spike in tourism the island saw during the race, but for use as a global promotional vehicle year after year to drive more regular tourists to the island as a vacation spot. As people from all over the world came and went back, espousing the beauty and comfort of the island, so the money would come. At least that's what the rich guys who ran the government thought, and why they invested so much in this event, rather than in other things the much more rustic living general population may have benefited from more, but that's one man's opinion. So 1958. The early promotion began to mention that Juan Fangio himself, still regarded by many at this time as the greatest race car driver who had ever lived, may be coming out of retirement to compete at NASA. This would be, perhaps, the biggest story in the history of the race. Miami Herald, July 26, 1958. Headline, NASA Race Certainty for Fangio? Sherman Kreiss, owner of the Bahamas Speed Week sports car races, said Friday he has been advised Juan Fangio will compete in the event this winter. Kreiss said the report came from a letter from Italy from Hans Tanner, the former factory driver for Ferrari. Fangio, Argentine driver who has won the world's championship four times, was quoted by a Milan, Italy paper on Tuesday as saying he would not race again. Christ said Fangio is expected to enter the Nassau Trophy race in a 4.7-liter Ferrari. Tanner will manage the factory Ferrari team during November 30th through December 8th at the Speed Week event, Christ said. The car that Fangio was supposed to have been going to drive was a Ferrari owned by Temple Buell Jr. Buell was the son of an ultra-wealthy Denver architect a man so prodigious in his work that he designed the very first shopping mall among 300 other structures in and around Denver. Buell was a bon vivant that never seemed to have to have a job outside of founding and opening a Chrysler dealership in 1963, seemingly for fun. 
A good man who lived a long life, Buell had a lot of fun. He was also a huge guy who was too large to be a race car driver, so he took team ownership very seriously. He had the best equipment, drivers, and machines, and he competed all over the world. Just another interesting character in the Bahamas Speed Week story of the late 1950s. Unfortunately for the race, the Fangio dream was crushed in November when he himself confirmed that he was not coming to Nassau to get a tan, to race a car, or to do much of anything else. The racers arrived to learn that their 5-mile Oaksfield course was now reconfigured to 4.5 miles and the direction had changed to counterclockwise. This was the course layout and the direction that the event would run on through its last year in 1966. The 1958 weekend was historic in the sense that Lance Reventlow proved the global worthiness of his Scarab sports cars by finding the winner's circle on both Saturday at the Governor's Cup and Sunday for the Nassau Trophy Cup. The story of both races were told with breathless AP reports from the scene. The Peninsula Times-Tribune, December 8, 1958. Reventlow shows way at Nassau by Whitney Martin. It cost Lance Reventlow about $50,000 each to build his two sleek blue and white Scarab racing cars, but he has shown that an American-made sports car can match those produced by European specialists in speed and endurance. Reventlow, the gangling, earnest son of heiress Barbara Hutton, shared driving duties with 34-year-old Chuck Day in winning two big events in the Nassau Speed Week. They piloted their big Corvette-powered Scarab to victory in the 252-mile Nassau Trophy race yesterday after having won the shorter Governor's Cup event on Friday. The Governor's Cup marked the first time an American-made car had won an international road race since 1924. Europeans long have contended that Americans could build good big cars of the Indianapolis type suitable only for speedway racing, but were outclassed by the smaller European cars and road racing. The Scarabs were put together under Reventlow's direction to disprove this theory, and they're huge by European standards. They carry 5.4-liter Corvette motors, much bigger than the Grand Prix-type racers, but they have now won four consecutive road races, the U.S. Grand Prix at Riverside, the Laguna Seca Road Race at Monterey, California, and the two events here. The 4.5-mile Oaksfield course here, laid out on an abandoned airport, proved a real test of endurance for the cars. It's remarkably safe despite its 18 turns and twists, but the rugged surface took a terrific toll, end quote. The Daily News, December 6, 1958, Nassau race to Reventlow. Disdaining a pit stop and gambling on worn tires, Lance Reventlow drove his 5,400cc Scarab to an impressive victory today in the 25-lap Governor's Cup race, secondary feature of Nassau's Speed Week. Reventlow took the lead when teammate Chuck Day of Los Angeles, driving a twin to Reventlow's Blue Bullet, was forced out after six laps because of a broken U-joint. He covered the 112.5 miles over the tricky 4.5-mile course at an average speed of 88.6 miles per hour. Reventlow finished one minute, six seconds ahead of George Constantine of Southbridge, Massachusetts, driving a Class C Aston Martin. Ed Carrot of Northfield, Illinois, piloting a 4,500cc Maserati was third, followed by Pedro Rodriguez Jr. of Mexico City in a Ferrari, and Ricardo Rodriguez, also of Mexico City, in a Class F 1498cc Porsche. It should be mentioned that Ricardo Rodriguez, at this time, was 15 years old. Reventlow's 1958 win was a huge boost in the arm for the prestige of American-built sports cars, and it really revved up the American sports car racing fan base. 1959 would prove a bit of a setback. The 1959 Bahamas Speed Week was as glorious as many of the other years, but it did suffer in one huge respect, and that was the fact that the big star power, 
the internationally known names didn't perform to the expected levels, and more awkwardly than that, an amateur driver, a virtual unknown 41-year-old man from Massachusetts named George Constantine, won the event. The victory did not land in nearly as many big headlines because of the fact that Constantine was such an unknown. And the stories? The stories were not exactly that flattering to George Constantine. This one comes from the Boston Evening Express of December 7, 1959. Base Dater Cop Sports Car Purse. George Constantine, 41-year-old silver-thatched public relations man from Southridge, Massachusetts, was $13,000 richer today. But more important to him was that he had won his first major international sports car race. Constantine came out of the pack yesterday with an English Aston Martin for a near-record triumph of the $33,000 Nassau Trophy race. He covered 49 laps of the brutal 4.5-mile course at an average speed of 87.2 miles per hour. This time was only a trifle under the record of 87.5. Sterling Moss of Britain, the favorite, apparently had control of his opposition when he roared into the 35th lap leading the field. Then, his trouble-plagued Aston Martin broke down for good and went into the pits. As Moss and then Gaston Andrea Framingham Mass were forced into the sidelines, Constantine went to the front and never was headed any other way. Andre driving a Maserati apparently had a second place sewed up, only to be rammed by another racer, puncturing the gas tank. Runner-up honors went to Phil Hill of Santa Monica, California, in a Ferrari. Then came Bob Holbert of Warrington, Pennsylvania, in a Porsche, followed by Jack Brabham of Australia in a 2-liter Cooper Monaco, and Swedish champion Joe Bonnier in a Porsche. Now, if you think this might have concerned Sherman Kreis, you are absolutely 100% wrong. As was the story of this guy's entire life, he had an ace up his sleeve. Television executives had been coming down to observe Bahamas Speed Week for a couple of years, but none of them had committed a crew to come shoot the race. That would all change for 1960, with CBS getting involved for the first time. Not only would they get involved, they would get involved at the exact right moment, because a rising star from Montebello, California, a lanky young man that had come up racing jalopies on dirt tracks, was certainly rising into an international star, and his name was Dan Gurney. And Dan Gurney would capture his first Bahamas Speed Week win in 1960 in front of the CBS cameras. The San Francisco Examiner, Feb 1. 1961. Quote, Racing enthusiasts who have never had the opportunity to witness the glamour and excitement of the fabulous Bahama Speed Week receive pit passes this Sunday, courtesy of the CBS Television Network. The weekly Sunday Sports Spectacular, scheduled for February 5th, will cover last December's Nassau show via tape from 2.30 to 4 p.m. Feature of the one and one half hour telecast is the modified event for sports cars headlining a field similar to the one that appeared at the Examiner's Pacific Grand Prix at Laguna Seca last October. As far as our records go, it will be the first major telecast of an international sports car race in network history. For the first time, a network chose to cover the race. CBS sent their Sunday Sports Spectacular crew to the Bahamas, and in February of 1961, the world got to see the Bahamas Speed Week extravaganza in living color, and people went bonkers. The telecast was advertised in newspapers nationwide, and Schlitz Beer was the primary sponsor. To say that the broadcast had the desired effect would be an understatement. The race was covered by every possible media outlet going forward. Car magazines, television, newspapers, they all came down in droves. They were treated to a star-studded cast of drivers, a glorious field of cars, and a week-long battle between the likes of Sterling Moss winning early, Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico winning Saturday, and Dan Gurney, the American hero himself, triumphing on Sunday. With Gurney's win on Sunday, he became a back-to-back -back winner at the event and certainly continued to establish himself as one of the greatest racers in the world. Headline, Tampa Bay Times, December 11, 1961. Gurney breaks own record in Nassau win. 
Dan Gurney of Montebello, California, driving an orange Lotus 19, won the Nassau Trophy race here yesterday for the second year in a row, setting a new speed record of 90.79 miles an hour. Gurney finished nearly a minute and a half in front of his nearest competitor, Roger Penske of Villanova, Pennsylvania, who drove a Cooper Monaco. Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico City was third in a Ferrari. Gurney is face covered with a black leather mask to protect it from exhaust fumes and stones thrown up by other cars, drove the 247.5 miles without a pit stop. His exhaust system was dragging for more than 100 miles, but it held together long enough to allow the Lotus to finish the race scheduled for 250 miles, but was cut short by darkness. Gurney, who won in the same car last year, took the lead on the 27th lap after early leader Sterling Moss of London, England was forced out by a broken rear suspension on his Lotus. After that, Gurney was never threatened, but that didn't keep him from pushing the race average speed higher and higher to break his last year's record of 89.5. Quote, I could hear the tailpipe banging on the corners, Gurney said, and I was afraid it wouldn't hold together the whole way, so I kept pressing harder, and I wanted to have as big a lead as possible when it did break. End quote. Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. For 1962, it was another promotional stroke of genius for Christ. He created a promotion to incentivize stock cars to enter the race. The Boston Globe, July 8, 1962. Bahamas Speed Week change. $1,000 offered for first U.S. car finishing at Nassau. The ninth annual Bahamas Speed Week, scheduled for December 1st through the 10th, will feature some changes in race events. The most startling innovation is an offer of $1,000 for the first American stock car to finish in the Nassau Tourist Trophy race. The stock car prize was added this year and brought many letters and entry requests from those who thought that the famous International Bahama event had treated American stockers like stepchildren. The primary event will continue to be the 250-mile Nassau Trophy race for sports cars on December 9th, the Formula Junior International Pan American race on the 8th and the 9th, the Governor's Trophy on December 7th, and the Nassau Tourist Trophy on December 2nd. When one combines the media machine along with the fact that now we're almost 10 years into this being a yearly event, you can understand why things were really rolling along in terms of popularity and participation at Bahamas Speed Week. We look now to the Miami News, December 6, 1962. Headline, Speed Kings Assemble for Nassau Clash. It was an unlikely sight that had the black men at Dockside intrigued. Their view of Red Christ rumbling around the edge of the quay, shouting and laughing and threatening and bossing were strange only because it was 8 o'clock in the morning and the captain usually didn't trump forth to challenge any day, no matter how important at such an hour. He was here for something very special, however. He came down from the pilot house to supervise the unloading of 20-odd bombs. The bombs were swift and powerful racing cars, each valued at many thousands of dollars and the product of numberless hours of care and tuning by the most skillful mechanics. For the ninth time, crisis staging for the island government, the famed Bahamas Speed Week. It got underway last Sunday when Roger Penske of Gladwin, Pennsylvania, won the 23-lap Nassau Taurus race for Grand Touring Cars. Penske shot around the 4.5-mile 16 Ben Oaks course at a track record speed of 88 miles an hour in a Ferrari.
The Governor's Trophy race, 15 laps, will be run in two sections tomorrow. There'll be a kind of horsepower smorgasbord, ladies races, sprints, and the like, and Sunday will mark the finish. The Nassau Trophy race will require 56 laps after a Le Mans-style start. The gun sounds with drivers on the ground, and they must leap into their machines and take off. It was a batch of cars for this big race that Christ met at Dockside. Red doesn't believe in half measures. The supervisor of the cars on their boat ride from the mainland was Mrs. Christ. From what I'm told, the object of the races is not to draw tourists to Nassau, although any who come are welcome so long as they bring fresh green. The big target is Datelines. Stories sent out by some 75 reporters of various kinds who attend Speed Week pump the name and personality of the Bahamas through media across the world. What happens here is more newsworthy in England than it is in Miami, although the number one road racing driver in the world now is Phil Hill, an American. Hill is here now, as is Maston Gregory, lately returned to racing after two bad accidents and other great names will compete this weekend. All save one, Sterling Moss, the brave Englishman, was forced to return home for another operation last week. Gravely injured last Easter in a smash hit that would have killed a less hardy athlete, the balding genius of the road lay unconscious for days. Numerous operations were performed, but Moss now must have one eye lifted, the true descriptive, by a bone graft under the stocket. End quote. The 1962 race had a slightly different personality than other events over the course of the last decade. In fact, there was more crashing and more controversy at this one than perhaps any other. December 8, 1962, Roger Penske injured in spill. If Roger Penske can snap back fast from a head and arm injury suffered in a spill, he may be able to compete in Sunday's Nassau Trophy race, which climaxes Bahamas Speed Week. The Gladwin, Pennsylvania sports car driver who won the tourist trophy race was one of the favorites to dethrone Nassau trophy holder Dan Gurney of California until Penske's Formula Junior car overturned in practice Friday. A physician forbade him to drive for 24 hours. As it turns out, Penske wasn't the only one who would make headlines for interesting reasons. The actual race winner in 1962 was Welshman Innes Ireland. Ireland was a famously scrappy, hardcore, and fender-banging Brit managed to win, caused controversy, and even his car owner needed to step up in order for Ireland to be able to receive his full payout for the race. Seems kind of crazy, but check this out. Headline, Ireland Stirs Up Trouble, Miami News, December 10th, 1962. His name is Innes Ireland. He's got a British accent, wears a bowler hat, carried a Bond Street umbrella, and was voted one of the best-dressed men in Great Britain. There, the resemblance between Innes Ireland and British custom ends. Ireland of motor racing sports is a dead-end kid. He's rowdy, coarse, and in five years of racing, has warred with officials from Sebring to New Zealand. He is what Sterling Moss has been for years, controversial and an outstanding driver. The 32-year-old Scotsman, now living in Wales, started yesterday's 252-mile Nassau Trophy race with a rhubarb, almost got disqualified on the 42nd lap, and ended the show with another rhubarb, which cost him $2,500. In between, he won the race. Quote, a lot of people compare me to Moss, he said, following the race. Moss was a much better driver than I'll ever be. As far as my scrappiness goes, well, there we're equal. Maybe I'm nastier. I've got a face that loves to be arrested. End quote. Innes, revving his engine, was at his dead-end best ten minutes before race time. Shut it off, screamed Sherman F. Red Christ. I'm not going to start this race with a stone-cold engine, Ireland snapped back. If you don't shut it off now, answered Christ, I'll make sure you don't start this race. The engine stopped. I've handled Moss and I can handle this guy too, Christ cracked to an observer. But a few minutes later, as Christ was giving his instructions to the drivers, Ireland hopped back in his car, got in, and had the last word or rev. Christ sizzled. 
Officials weighed penalizing Ireland a lap for coming into the pits in an improper manner on the 42nd lap, but chose not to stir the hornet's nest. And when the race ended, Ireland allowed as how he was going to catch a plane almost immediately from Miami and then London and on down to South Africa for another race. Then came out the Nassau rule books, which say the winner forfeits half of his $5,000 purse to charity if he doesn't show up at Monday's formal motorball. Christ and Ireland walked down the almost deserted track, arms waving, voices raised as they tried to negotiate the problem. When Christ came back, he announced that the Ranfurly School for Children in Nassau was now $2,500 richer, courtesy of Innes Ireland. When Ireland came back, he announced that Christ hadn't heard of the last of this and that he would take it up with the powers that be after he returned from South Africa. As a scrapper, Moss can't compare to Ireland. End quote. A couple of days later, the story was still in the headlines. Victoria Advocate, December 12, 1962, O'Connor Donation Gives Race Driver Full Purse. A donation to charity by Texas millionaire Tom O'Connor made it possible for Ennis Ireland of England, winner of Sunday's Nassau Trophy Race, to receive his full $5,000 prize money, yet satisfy a race stipulation. Ireland won the race in O'Connor's Lotus and then announced he was leaving immediately to fill a prior engagement. Bahamas Speed Week officials notified him of a restriction that the racer must be present at Monday night's formal ball or forfeit half his winnings to charity. Ireland left in a huff, but at last night's ball, O'Connor said he wanted the British driver to get his full $5,000. He said if Ireland got the full purse, he would donate what would have been the forfeiture in Ireland's behalf. Contest officials agreed, and O'Connor, who heads the Rosebud Racing Team of Victoria, Texas, wrote out checks for $1,000 to the Ranfurly School for Children in Nassau, $1,000 to the Crippled Children's Association of Nassau, and $625 to the Nassau chapter of the Red Cross. End quote. As we all know, controversy not only helps sell tickets, but it keeps the profile of an event up. And that event was higher profile than ever, because in 1963, the headlines read as follows. Colton Courier, December 4, 1963. Nassau Trophy Race Will Be Telecast. The Nassau Trophy Race for Sports Cars, the climax of the 10th Annual Bahamas International Speed Week and the World Invitational Roller Skating Championship from Las Vegas, featuring the world's best roller skaters, will be seen on ABC's Wide World of Sports Saturday, December 14th at 5.30 p.m. Jim McKay, the regular host of Wide World of Sports and international racing champion Sterling Moss, will describe the action and color at the beautiful Nassau site. Well, Bill Fleming, assisted by roller skating expert and teacher Dale Partridge, will call the competition at Las Vegas. Defending champion Innes Ireland of London will team with Richie Ginther of Los Angeles in an attempt to retain the title against a field of 63 starters at the Nassau Trophy Race. Among the drivers expected to offer keen competition, A.J. Foyt, Dan Gurney, Pedro Rodriguez, Joe Bonnier, Mike Pendleton, Bill Bradshaw, Bob Holbert, Ken Miles, Mike Parks, and Lorenzo Bandini. Also entered in the race is a team of three flyers representing the Royal Air Force. End quote. One of the most exciting stories leading into the 1963 race didn't involve a person, but it actually involved a car. The second ever prototype of a 427 Shelby Cobra would make its public racing debut at Nassau Speed Week. Now, what's interesting, if you look back at the history books, the very first 427 Cobra made its competition debut at Sebring earlier that year, but it seems many historians consider the Nassau race as its first actual public running. This story from the Miami News, November 10, 1963, tells more. Headline, Americans make bid at Nassau. 
American-made sports cars may offer a strong challenge to the foreign speedsters in the 250-mile Nassau Trophy Race December 8th, highlight of the 10th annual Bahama International Speed Week. A powerful Ford Cobra developed in California by former driving star Carol Shelby will bid for a share of the $35,000 in prize money. Ken Miles of London and Bob Holbert of Warrington, Pennsylvania will be at the wheel. Ford has done well recently with its engine, finishing second over the last two races at Riverside, California. Although General Motors does not officially enter car races, the firm is reported to have more than a passing interest in four new aluminum Corvettes reportedly being readied especially for the Nassau team of top drivers. Competition from abroad will be as formidable as ever as racers dash for the prize of $5,250. Included in the starting field will be defending champion Ennis Ireland of London and teammate Richie Ginther of Los Angeles. Ginther now stands third in the World Championship standings behind Jimmy Clark of Scotland and John Surtees of England. Captain Sherman F. Christ, race director, has protested to the Royal Automobile Club of England about the withdrawal of John Surtees from the race. End quote. The battle amongst all these historic all-stars of racing came down to the big Nassau Trophy race on Sunday. And A.J. Foyt claimed victory in one of Lance Reventlow's scarabs. It was a massive, massive news story and proved that this again was one of the premier racing events in the world. The television coverage that aired across the country at various points continued the mission of tourism visibility and Red Christ was laughing all the way to the bank. The purse money was enormous for the time and the equivalent of nearly $52,000 to put in the winner's pocket. This was A.J. Foyt's first real huge sports car win at a high-profile event, and he would prove over the next few decades that it would not be his last by any stretch. But the greatest year in Bahamas Speed Week history, 1964, was just around the corner. The hype began in July with the following story that ran in the Boston Globe July 5th of 1964. Two of the greatest names in auto racing, A.J. Foyt of Houston, Texas, and Jim Clark of Scotland have signed to compete at the 1964 Bahamas International Speed Week in Nassau, Bahamas. The 11th annual running of Speed Week is set for November 29th through December 7th. Foyt, an American champion and winner of the 1964 Indianapolis 500, will drive the John Meekham Special, which he won Nassau in 1963. Clark will drive a Lotus sports car. Other international stars scheduled to compete in the Caribbean Winter Classic are Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico, Dan Gurney of California, Bob Holbert of Pennsylvania, Skip Hidson of Arlington, California, and Dr. Dick Thompson of Washington, D.C. Television coverage would continue in 1964, and that meant the big names would continue to come, both in terms of celebrities and star power and glamour, and on the racing front. Already successful in business and approaching racing with an ever more analytical mind, Roger Penske was still one of the country's best sports car drivers. Roger Penske had competed and won on a global level, and he was about to put on a display the likes of which Bahama Speed Week had never seen nor would ever see again. Penske would complete a clean sweep of the entire race weekend, and he had a little help from his friends to do it. It began with the Taurus Trophy race, as reported by the Buffalo News on November 30th of 1964. American Roger Penske averaged 93.02 miles an hour in a Corvette to cover the 103.5 of the 112.5-mile course to win the Nassau Taurus Trophy Motor Race. It marked the start of Bahamas Speed Week in Nassau. And then came the Governor's Cup. December 5, 1964, the Greensboro record headline, Penske heads for big sweep of Speed Weeks. December 5th, Roger Penske, a sportsman driver with the know-how of a professional, added a second trophy to his collection yesterday and headed for what could be a clean sweep of the Bahamas Speed Week, three major road racing events. Penske, a 27-year-old auto dealer at Gladwin, Pennsylvania, who looks like a high school halfback, 
dashed home three seconds ahead of A.J. Foyt to win yesterday's 112.5-mile Governor's Cup in record time of 100.12 miles an hour. He was driving a Chaparral Chevrolet. Foyt was second. Wald Hanskin of Bedminster, Pennsylvania was third. Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico was fourth. And Ludwig Heinzrath of Toronto, fifth. It was the Penske's second victory in less than a week. Last Tuesday, he won the 100-mile Nassau Taurus Trophy race, also in record time. He thus becomes a solid favorite in tomorrow's 252-mile International Cup race. That race marks the final event on this year's world road racing calendar. December 7, 1964, the news. Associated Press. Penske scores Bahamas Speed Week sweep. Roger Penske should back a truck up to the swank British Colonial Hotel tonight to haul away the trophies and dollars he won during Bahamas Speed Week. Penske, a 27-year-old Gladwin auto dealer, Sunday became the first driver ever to make a clean sweep of all major Speed Week racing events. Some of the world's best drivers have spent years trying. Penske's record for the week. He won the Taurus Trophy race on November 29th, settling for 93.02 miles an hour for the 102-mile duration. He won the Governor's Cup race of 112 miles Friday, and his 100.12-mile-an-hour speed was also a track record. He then replaced Hap Sharp of Midland, Texas in a Chaparral Chevrolet Sunday and won the 252-mile International Trophy race, the last big event of the year on the World Road Racing calendar. His time of 89.11 miles an hour was made on a course dampened by a pre-race shower. In addition, Penske set a one-lap qualifying record of 105.19 miles an hour for the tricky 4.5-mile course. For this, he'll also get a trophy. This week's doings netted the wealthy sportsman driver just under $10,000. He doesn't need the cash, and if he doesn't show up at the British Colonial tonight to receive it, the money will go to charity. What's really interesting about this story is not the fact that Penske won all three races, it's how he actually won the third race on Sunday. Penske had actually crashed his car early in the event on the wet racetrack, and once Pap Sharp understood that he was out of the race, being the great teammate that he was, he brought his chaparral in so Penske could get in and try to complete the sweep. The team wanted the recognition, the team wanted the dough, and the team wanted to be able to say that their chaparral won the two most important races of the entire week, and Hap Sharp was the man who had the wherewithal to pull in the pits, jump out of the race car, and wave Roger Penske in. To me, some of the other supporting stories from the 1964 event are really amazing and kind of lost to history. The first being the car that A.J. Foyt drove and tried to win this event in. The machine was owned by a Texan named John Meekham, and John Meekham's father was an oil man, an oil man who had secured the rights to drill oil wells in the country of Jordan. Meekham, using some of his dad's income, had a car constructed that they named Hussein One. The car was named after King Hussein, the man who gave the rights to the Meekham family to drill in Jordan. The most awesome part of the entire car was a mid-mounted, cross-ram-equipped 426 Chrysler Hemi engine. It was the most powerful car in the field by a bunch, but unfortunately the big Hemi did not necessarily like the road racing environment, the cross-ram carburetors were fouling up constantly, and A.J. Foyt spent more time working on the car perhaps than actually running it around the racetrack. The second big story, of course, was Ken Miles driving the 427 Cobra, and that 427 Cobra was the fastest thing on the track until the engine blew up. But two legendary cars battling on the same racetrack with big blocks in the nose portended one very important thing in the early 1960s. It portended the era of big block road racing was on the way. The Can-Am series would be developed in the middle to late 1960s, and many of the cars that competed in 1964, 65, and 66 would be the types of cars that the Can-Am series was based on. Most of the cars had small block engines, but the big block powered machines, the rare as they were, really drew a crowd. One of the other crazy stories from 1964 didn't even involve the racetrack, it involved a storage facility. Quoting the March 1965 edition of Sports Car Graphic Magazine, it reads, 
Following the opening races come three days devoted, according to taste of necessity, to such things as readying modifieds, putting together the pieces left over from the tourist trophy, and repairing the course, swimming, shopping, drinking, and other pursuits. It was during this time that the whodunit occurred. The crews for Dan Gerber's Cobra and Saunders' fresher repair Grand Sport Stingray arrived at the hangar to find carnage. The engine in Dan's car was making very sick noises, and the telltale on the tack showed that it had been twisted to 8,000 RPM sometime during the night. What had happened to the Grand Sport Corvette was much more obvious. Much, much more obvious. Bits and pieces of the aluminum block, the crank, and rods were scattered all over the floor in a manner more familiar to the habitudes of Bonneville than a road course. So strong was the force of the blow-up that chips had been gouged into the hangar floor. The culprit was found after fingerprint checks to have been a native type hired by Gerber to watch the equipment. Wanting to hear what kind of noise the machinery made, he had fired them up and buried his foot in the throttle with the engines dead cold. He became most indignant when his request for payment for his guarding services was refused as he was led off to sample the hospitality of Her Majesty's prison. Yikes. Another fun part of this race in 1963 was the introduction of a Formula V event as well as a Grand Prix for Volkswagen Beetles. Imagine, if you will, the world's greatest race car drivers, Dan Gurney, A.J. Foyt, and the whole mix, and 36-horsepower Beetles beating and banging their way around a four-and-a-half-mile course. The Formula V race took advantage of one of the most exploding popular classes of road racing at that time in history. Formula V was a way for people to go open-wheel racing on a very modest budget. The interesting part of the Formula V event was that many ringers were put in the race cars, and Bruce McLaren, yes, that Bruce McLaren, won the Formula V race, driving probably the slowest race car he ever competed wheel-to-wheel in in his life before he drove a Beetle. If the 1964 running of Bahamas Speed Week was the absolute pinnacle of the event's history, 1965 brought on a fairly rapid decline. Now, don't get me wrong, the racing was still very good, the cars were pretty high-level, but there was just a lot less professionals and a lot more amateurs. The reason for this is the fact that racing series around the world would continue to run later in the year and then begin running earlier in the year the following season. That shrunk the offseason to a certain point where many teams on the professional level couldn't justify the time and the expense of getting one last gasp out of last year's car while stealing time away from preparing the next season's machine for competition. There was still plenty of action, and two out of the three races did produce track records. Only the Taurus Trophy didn't break any records, and certainly the competition, when we look at the cars themselves, was pretty stout. The Chaparrells were back, there were Porsches, Bruce McLaren was back in his machine, John Cannon was there in the Genie Olds owned by Dan Blocker, Foyt was driving a Lotus 40, Tom Payne was in a 289 Cobra, and Chris Amon was there in the Ford GTX-1, which was a roofless version of a Ford GT pretty stunning piece of equipment in and unto itself. As the course of the week went on, the Chaparrells once again established their dominance, and ultimately it would come down to Jim Hall and his teammate Hap Sharp for the end of the weekend honors during the Nassau Cup race. Now let's quote the March 1966 issue of Sports Car Graphic magazine. Quote, Then Hall and Sharp came in on one consecutive lap for fuel and tires. Hap was out again in roughly half a minute, but Hall's stop took a full two minutes. Just before Hall pitted, McLaren, holding Hall grimly to only a few seconds' advantage, blew his engine sky high. The engine emitted a puff of smoke, cleared, and then really laid down a trail that looked like a destroyer covering a convoy. All this put Hap Sharp into a lead he would never relinquish to the end. Trying to make up the 50-second deficit, Hall's steering broke, and he shot across the course and wiped out the back of the Chaparral 2C against a Fiat that had been disabled earlier in the island race. This left Sharp unthreatened for the remainder of the race, which by now had turned into a parade with John Cannon, a distant second, and Dan Blocker's Genie, powered by a new and untried old stuffed in the body the night before. Third, and doing a smooth, incredibly fast job, was Pete Revson and his two-liter Brabham Climax. And fourth, 
was Charlie Cole in the Porsche 6 prototype. He later protested Revson's car for oversize, but that protest was disallowed when it was found that the Climax was not only under 2 liters, but some 17cc smaller than the Porsche. Fifth and first in the GT category was Bob Grossman and Tom Payne's Cobra 289. Payne having relinquished the ride due to injuries sustained during his earlier excursion into a hole mentioned earlier. All in all, an excellent week of racing, though it would have been nice to have had some team participation to challenge the Texans' tactics. As is the case in so many things, not only in racing but in all of history, the end and final decline tends to come first with a shock and then with a whimper. The shock for the Bahamas Speed Week came in August of 1966. The major problem? Sir Sidney Oaks, the man who had so steadfastly supported and championed the races for all these years, was killed in a car wreck. August 9, 1966, son of murdered millionaire killed. Sir Sidney Oaks, Bahamas industrialist and sports car racer, was killed Monday in a highway accident. The 39-year-old son of murdered millionaire Sir Harry Oaks failed to make a curve on the Lyford K Airport Road. His Sunbeam Alpine clipped off a pole and its top portion smashed down on the wreck, pinning the driver. Sir Sidney's father was bludgeoned at his Nassau home in 1943, a slaying that became the Bahamas' most famous murder mystery. Sir Harry's son-in-law was tried and acquitted for the crime. Sir Sidney's 17-year-old son Christopher now is in line for the title originally bestowed on Sir Harry after the Maine native ran a Canadian gold strike into a vast fortune and built hospitals in the Bahamas and England. Sir Sidney operated the Bahamas' largest bottling plant and was active in real estate. He was also one of the prime organizers of the annual Bahamas Speed Week sports car racing competition held in Nassau each December. He raced another car, his son being Tiger last December and was planning to do so again this year. Sir Sidney leaves his widow Nancy, their son Pitt, his mother Lady Eunice, a brother Harry, and sister Miss Allen Butler, all of Nassau. Despite the loss of Sir Sidney Oaks, the race would go on in 1966, and Hap Sharp would pick up right where he left off. While Peter Revson won the kickoff Taurus Trophy race, it was the 38-year-old Texan Hap Sharp that won the Governor's Cup race on Saturday, the lead-in to the big 250-miler on Sunday. Another massive name scored a win over the course of the week as well, Jochen Rint who four years later in 1970 would be killed and yet still win the F1 championship that year, won a 100-mile Grand Prix of Volkswagen Beetles over the course of Bahamas Speed Week, a simpler race in a simpler time, and a very interesting footnote to a career that was cut far too short. The winner of the Nassau Trophy on Sunday would be Mark Donahue. Donahue in 1966 was driving for Roger Penske, Penske, the man who had come to Nassau so many times and seen so much success, added another notch to his own belt, and Donahue continued to build on what would become an incredible international driving career. But as we look at the race coverage from 1966, specifically that inside the pages of Sports Car Graphic, we begin to see a troubling trend. The opening paragraph asks a question and lets us know all we need to know. Quote, Is Nassau dying? As a resort area, it's quite lively, but as a center of sports car racing, it has shown signs of decay. Interested Nassau residents are most concerned about the fate of the annual International Nassau Trophy Road Racers. A local newspaper, the Bahama Weekly, asks, Where is the competition? Whither speed weeks bound? Many who compete in the various facets which make up auto racing claim the Nassau crowds are diminishing and the race is going downhill. It's these people that should know because it's their race and not much of a spectator attraction. Only a couple of thousand view the event. To the casual observer, Nassau may appear to be thriving because of the race. The thousands of hotel rooms are filled, the nightly cocktail parties and 10-day tradition of speed weeks are jammed, but this is understandable since anyone is allowed. 
Just two bucks ahead and all you can drink anywhere else on the island of New Providence, two bucks gets you only two drinks. But Nassau is always crowded with tourists during the winter months. Mark Donahue set the average speed record in the course of his victory in the Nassau Cup at 105.684 miles an hour. And he finished almost five seconds ahead of hard luck Skip Scott, who spun in the last lap. One of the things that overshadowed the actual race results at this event were several very important and very scary safety breakdowns. Listen to this. Another accident on the opening lap critically injured Venezuelan champion Rodrigo Borges. His Ferrari P3 went too fast into the first turn, flipped on the coral gravel, and burst into flames. The driver was out of the car, but his gasoline-drenched uniform was ablaze. Borges' condition was said to be critical more than a week after the accident. An unforgivable occurrence happened during the fire. The fire truck had been parked behind the pits of all places. As the huge truck lumbered along the narrow pit lane about five minutes after the first smoke curled into the sky, it was delayed at the end while a chain-link fence had to be cut down so it could pass. This bit of good planning took about 15 minutes altogether. While the truck was bogged in wire fence, Pedro Rodriguez's Ferrari Dino was waiting to get out of the pits behind the truck, and it almost cost the Mexican driver an under-2-liter win. He did manage to return to the race and beat out Peter Gregg in the Porsche Carrera. Rodriguez, who was driving for Bill Hera, who was expected to launch a strong racing program in 67. Ferrari is expected to go all-in racing this year, including a Group 7 field, and Hera is rumored to be a strong backer of the company in American competition. As the story closed up in Sports Car Graphic, it left us with this. The interest in the Nassau race is still high among the Islanders. Let's hope there are more races at that tropical paradise, but next time, bigger and safer. There would be no next time in 1967. The political climate in the Bahamas had begun to change, and undoubtedly seeing and feeling the competition from the Bahamas race, other racing organizations began to change their seasons again to squeeze the dates. This kept some of the best-known professional drivers occupied, and as such, the cars were occupied as well. The 1966 event would mark the end of Bahamas Speed Week as we know it. The death of Sidney Yokes caused the event's largest island supporter to go away, and the political climate being what it was, popular support crumbled, and there was no race in 1967. Not only was there no race, there was no promise of a race, no attempt in the media to sway anybody's opinion to have a race, but there was in 1968. April 25th of 1968, in the Miami Herald, the following story ran. Headline, Grand Bahama out, Christ sits back hoping Nassau knows a good thing. Quote, Grand Bahama's out, Nassau's holding pat, and Red Christ is just sitting back waiting for the wheels of politics to revolve his way. Christ is a legendary promoter of the Grand Bahama Speed Week, among other racing events around the world. Rather, he was the promoter of Grand Bahama Speed Week. No more. We ran Speed Week in Nassau for 13 years, Christ said from his Fort Lauderdale office. We did one hell of a job, too. Then Nassau decided it didn't want us anymore. Figured they could go do as well without our race, so we went to Grand Bahama last year. Now Grand Bahama doesn't want us, but Nassau has a change of heart and wants us back. Nassau's Ministry of Tourism decided two years ago that it could do just as well during December without the race. It tried, and it failed. Business was down more than 30% last December, and now the Hotel Association is begging for racing to return. Quote, They want us back, but we had to put off the decision until after the last election, said Red. Now we're just waiting on the government to get together and talk it over. We're definitely out of Grand Bahamas, though. Definitely. Quote, They're a bunch of fools over there turned on our race and decided to put all their money into the golf basket. Tournaments running through December. Listen to this. The big prize is you can invite 50 of your friends over to the Bahamas for two weeks. Now isn't that beautiful? I kind of like the road course over there. They don't have a track, so I had to build an overpass and a tremendous amount of fence. Heck, it cost us about a quarter million, plus a tremendous year-round publicity. 
How the heck can you be publicity like that? How much would you have to pay for that kind of stuff? And we provided it free. Quote, so now we're just hanging tight until we can get together with the Nassau government. I want them to really think it over. I don't want a rush-up job. I want them to be mighty, mighty sure. Red Christ doesn't beat around anybody's bush. He says what he feels, means exactly what he says, and doesn't care who he bucks. When Red Christ said he'll put on the finest show in racing, he means he'll put on the finest show in racing. He's never promoted a second-class event to date and doesn't plan to start now. Nassau would do well to think long and hard about Christ and his speed week and then jump at the chance to return to the new Nassau racetrack. I'm not worried, said Christ. They know a good thing when they see one. End quote. Despite the bellicose statements made in this story, there was never another Bahamas Speed Week in the style of the first 13. Yes, there have been revivals, but the truth is, they were more historic racing celebrations than events of a competitive caliber like the 1950s and 60s saw. The racers who competed and won in Nassau were the best of the best. Many went on to accumulate the type of accolades, awards, and wins that placed them in racing hall of fames around the world. Many others were killed in wrecks around the world. But one man had an even more interesting post-life and Bahamas Speed Week than any of the other racers. Red Kreis. In 1964, Kreis had become the mayor of a tiny hamlet called Hacienda Village, Florida. The place was effectively a trailer park with about 130 residents and a few hundred business addresses within its tiny borders. A junkyard was the largest industry in town. That is until Red Christ had an idea. Hacienda Village became the most notorious speed trap in the United States. Christ, who ran the town like his own benevolent dictatorship, created a police department with 27 officers. And again, the entire population of the town was 133 people. Those 27 officers were writing more than 600 speeding tickets a month. And the speeding ticket revenue made up nearly half of the entire revenue stream of the entire town into the 1980s. The racket persisted for decades, even with state officials trying to shut the town down after they themselves had been ticketed while passing through. There were repeated efforts made by state officials to dissolve the town, unincorporate it, and have it swallowed up or annexed by another community. Christ was able to fight them all off somehow. Finally, though, in 1984, seeing that he wouldn't be reelected as mayor and a town councilman that he hated would assume the position, Christ made a deal to have the city of Davie, Florida, annex the entirety of Hacienda Village. And that, as they say, was that. Red Christ died in 1991 at the age of 82, having lived a life that at times was heroic, at times opportunistic, at times threatening, and somehow constantly entertaining. The legacy of Bahamas Speed Week lives on in video and lore today, but you now know the whole story. How a rich promoter, a British baronet with American lineage and the world's best sports car drivers turned a week of parties, race cars, and fun into an iconic destination for competition for 13 years through the 1950s and 60s. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use Jerko for 10% off.